Well, reviewing a little bit again, this setting here for the book of Hebrews, uh, and we had looked at this before, and I just, but I wanted to review it again. It's it, it in thinking about this and just seeing it. Uh, it's just very, it's in, interesting to me how uh, the church. We, you see, we think this, we think this book of Hebrews was possibly written to the Jewish Christians at Jerusalem or in Judea. Uh, they were they were Jewish Christians today. I guess we'd call Messianic Jews, um, but the church at Acts, <clears throat> the church in Acts, as Acts started out, well, you know, Jesus told them. Well, it was okay. It was 120, 120 in the upper room when they met together after Jesus ascended. So it wasn't a very big group to start with. But Jesus had told the disciples. He said. Um, he said, wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And then he said, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. And that verse 8 is sort of an outline of the book of Acts. Uh, but he said, you wait for the promise. Well, the promise came in Acts 2 the uh, day of Pentecost and uh, it was a um, it was a vibrant church I mean 3,000 were added one day and then another day were 5,000 men we don't know how many other was involved in that women certainly some and then it says um, well it, it says in Acts uh, 6 where they had the problem with the, with the uh, as they distributed to the needs of the widows it says when the number of the disciples was multiplied. And so it was a very thriving church. And of course, we read about how they had fellowship and they met together and, you know, everything was just beautiful. Uh, then, okay, so the deacons, they had seven deacons and then the persecution. Okay, then Stephen was martyred and that was sort of the spark that lit the fire. And it says they were persecuted and they scattered. And uh, so you have in Acts 8 that Philip went to Samaria. Okay, so in Acts 1, verse 8, it said Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost part of the earth. So in Acts 8, well, okay, now this is interesting too. So they had this thriving church. And so evident Jerusalem, Judea, they were reaching out. But to get them to go beyond that took some persecution. Uh, so Philip went to Samaria. Samaria, maybe 40 miles from Jerusalem. Then in Acts 9, Saul is on the way to Damascus to get the Christians there. So there's Christians in Damascus now. Probably some, maybe that went back from the day of Pentecost. Maybe, I don't know, but they were there. Damascus, 140 miles from Jerusalem. Then in Acts 10, God sends Cornelius to Peter from Caesarea. Now Caesarea is still kind of in Judea, so that's only about 55 miles from Jerusalem. But the way things are spreading out. Then in Acts 
11, you have the church. It says some that went from Jerusalem on, after the persecution, they went as far as Antioch. And they preached. Uh, it says, I'll read it here. Now, now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. They sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. And then he went to Tarsus to bring Paul back and help out. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, not Jerusalem, in Antioch. Uh, little Christ. Well, Antioch was about 300 miles from Jerusalem. Um, so that was a picture of a thriving, growing, spreading church. Few uh, within a year or two after crucifixion and ascension. This, the book of Hebrews, comes maybe 30 years later around A.D. 65. It's before the temple was destroyed. We know because it still talks about it. Uh, 30 years later, it seems like possibly these Jewish Christians were wearied, wore down. Family, friends, community. We haven't experienced that. To become Christians, we haven't become outcast from our friends and our families and our community. That is a lot of pressure. And, again, reviewing, but they're Jewish friends or whatever, acquaintances or opponents or whatever, they could say, look what we have. We have this rich heritage. The law was given to us from Mount Sinai. We had people like Moses and Joshua. We had Aaron and the priesthood, and that was still going on. Uh, all the ritual and the regalia, the garments, the daily offerings. I mean, like John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, it says, you know, he was taking his turn, his course, it said. Well, see, David had organized all this way back, and it's still going on a thousand years later. I mean, they had the history. They had the heritage. They had the background. And they had the temple. And I was just thinking about that. In, uh, in Mark 13, it is... Uh, it says, as he, this, as they were leaving Jesus, as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said, and the master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. See? See? They could see that. They looked. 
And Jesus answered and said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. But they, they had this tangible stuff. And I was looking a little bit about the temple. And this is what some information was given. The word temple was given not merely to the sacred edifice, in other words, that right where the priest went in and all that, or the house itself, but to all the numerous chambers, courts, and rooms connected with it on the top of Mount Moriah. The temple itself was a small edifice and was surrounded by courts and chambers half a mile in circumference. The temple was erected on Mount Moriah. The space on the summit of the mount was not, however, large enough for the buildings necessary to be erected. It was therefore enlarged by building high walls from the valley below and filling up the space within. The Jews say the temple was built of white and green spotted marble. Josephus says the stones were white and strong, 50 feet long, 24 broad, and 16 thick. Well, you know, I like math. That's 19,000 cubic feet, a stone, 19,000 cubic feet. Marble, the density of marble is about 170 pounds. That is 1,600 tons. The, 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 the most powerful crane, mobile crane in the world can lift 1,200 tons. So it couldn't have lifted one of those stones. Now, the, 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 the biggest lift that was ever done was by a, a, a crane at a port in China, you know, those stationary ones, and it actually lifted 20,000 tons. But anyway, this was some structure. One of these walls was 600 feet in height. The ascent to the temple was by high flights of steps. The entrance to the temple or to the courts on the top of the mount was by nine gates, all of them extremely splendid. On every side they were thickly coated with gold and silver, but there was one gate, uh, one gate of peculiar magnificence. This was called the beautiful gate, referred to in Acts 3.2, it was on the east side and was made of Corinthian brass, one of the most precious metals in ancient times. This gate was 75 feet in height. The whole temple, with all its courts, was surrounded by a wall about 25 feet in height. On the inside of this wall, between the gates, were covered porches. On the eastern, northern, and western sides, there were two rows of these porches. On the south, three rows. These porches were covered walks, about 20 feet in width, paved with marble of different colors with a flat roof of costly cedar, which was supported by pillars of solid marble so large that three men could scarcely stretch their arms so as to meet around them. These walks or porches afforded a grateful shade and protection to the people in hot or stormy weather. This one on the east, the one on the east side was distinguished for its beauty and was called Solomon's porch. This is what the Jews could say they had. And what did the Jewish Christians have. They had a shamefully crucified itinerant teacher. Now, what did the Jewish Christians have? Yes, they had Christ. Better than the prophets, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. But, okay, all the things that the Jews had were what? Yeah, tangible and visible. Yeah. And what the Christians had was spiritual and invisible. So, 
Okay, Romans 8, 24. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, what does he yet hope for? Or in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith, not by sight. I thought maybe I'd have you turn to this one, but just listen. 2 Corinthians 4, 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. That's kind of interesting. We look not at the things that are seen, but we look at the things that are not seen. Do you look at things that are not seen? For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Very interesting. What do you see? What do I see? Jesus said to him, Seest thou these great buildings? There's not going to be one stone left on top of another. So what the Jews could see was fleeting. And what the Jewish Christians, the Hebrew Christians, had was eternal. Now, faith is the substance of things not seen. It's interesting. Yesterday is my 50th year class reunion at Bridgewater, and uh, we got a book of, you know, all the people in the class, and they would they had the chance to say a little something, what their interests were and so on. I noticed this one lady, I think she's probably a philosophy and religion major, but what her interest was metaphysics. Uh, faith is the substance of things not seen. Do things not seen have substance? The substance of things not seen. The now faith is the substance of things not seen. The evidence. How is that word? I should know that. I thought I knew that. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Okay. Well, um, let's go on. Let, uh, let's read chapter two of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter two. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received the just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing that witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testifies, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? 
Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to make like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Okay, back to the first part of the chapter. The first four verses are the first warning in the book of Hebrews. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The idea is just drifting away from the truth that we know. Uh, I understand in the Greek the idea is run out as a leaking vessel, just leaks out. And then it says, that the Old Testament law was to be obeyed. And it says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? How shall we escape? I'll look at that shortly. But how shall we escape if we neglect, neglect so great salvation? It doesn't, it was interesting in studying this to think about. It doesn't say reject. It says neglect. It's not just turning your back on it, you know, but neglecting our salvation. That's kind of the same idea as the slip. You know, slip, just drift away. The salvation we have, just neglected. That's probably a greater danger for us than rejecting it. Now, how should we escape if we neglect? Neglect what? So great salvation. How great is it to you or to me? Are we awed? Are we overwhelmed? Are we captivated? Are we captured? Is it the pearl of great price? You know, in Matthew, Jesus, the parables of the kingdom, the man... He found a pearl of great price and he sold everything for it. Is that the great salvation for us? Are we sold out to it? 
1 Corinthians 2, 9, but it is written, I have not seen nor hear heard, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them to us by his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. So great salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? How shall we escape? Well, Hebrews 12, 25 gives the answer to that. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, referring to Old Testament, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. So it's serious. Now I said the things that the Hebrew Christians had were invisible compared to all that the Jewish people could speak to and what they could see, the temple, the, the, the um, ceremonies and the festivals and the special days and all that, all tangible. But it's not quite invisible. Like I think that uh, Philip said that sometimes Jews will call the CAM hotline and, you know, and they'll talk about their heritage, you know, and, and, uh, and how there were 600,000 witnesses you know, when the law was given on Mount Sinai. Didn't you say something like that? And, and so what do we have? Well, now look here. At first began to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, which would you rather have? Would you rather have 600,000 men bearing witness? Or would you rather have God bearing witness? See? So it's not... I was thinking about this, and I evidently didn't put it in my notes. It's intangible in some ways. Okay, I do have it a little bit later in my notes, but in, in reference to this, but... God at work here, God bearing them witness, those signs and wonders, divers miracles. And I'm not saying that we need to look for necessarily the signs and wonders and, and miracles, but our children, our families need to see God at work in our lives. Otherwise, our what we're trying to pass on is just going to be theory to them. Okay, it says um, for, in verse 5, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, wherever we speak. And I was thinking about the world to come, and I was thinking about what the Scripture says in different places, Second Peter 3.13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Revelation 21.1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And in, in my Old Testament class at Bridgewater, when I was just a freshman, uh, and I don't remember what the setting was, but I know the teacher made some sort of a, sort of a snide reference to these people that just believe pie in the sky by and by. And it bothered me a little bit, and uh, James Gearing was teaching at Bridgewater at that time, and so I ran into something, I'd go talk to him. And so I went and talked to him about it, and he said, well, it is true, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, we are looking for pie in the sky by and by. I mean, that's not the whole story, but but that is part of the story. 
But, you know, I believe the kingdom now, too. Not just, it's not just a future thing, it's the kingdom now. Uh, so the pie in the sky thing hasn't happened yet, but something has happened. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or new creation. That has happened. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become true. Therefore, all things have become new. So that's the kingdom now. It was interesting, though, in studying this, it, it said the Jewish expression, uh, the world to come, the powers of the world to come, referred to the gospel age. That the world, the, the, the world to come, they, they talk about the world to come as the Messianic age. And so we're in that age now. Christ has come. Um, so there's that aspect of it too. But the the power, okay, and also it's it's uh, it, it's that expression is used in Hebrews six verse five, and that is part of another warning. But tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. The powers of the world to come. That's that's all about the powers of the world to come, and according to what various commentators said that world to come is the messianic age or or the world after the messiah has come and he i mean not the second coming but the first coming which we accept the new testament has happened so in that sense we're in that world to come but the power of the world to come and so are we aware of that power have we experienced that power have our children seen demonstrations of that power in our lives? That's where I had it in my notes. And I was thinking about that book that Norman Plank wrote. Yes, God still speaks today. You know, the book starts out Hebrews, God has spoken, but God still speaks today. And so uh, our children need to see God speaking into our lives and working in our lives. Now, verses 6 to 8 here are quoting from Psalm 8. It says, one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than angels, um, crowned him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of the hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Um, it, this, this thought came to me in Sunday school. Uh, we were talking about what made David the man that he is. And, of course, he had those experiences with God when he was keeping the sheep, where God helped him... Um, with the lion and the bear, and he was still a young fella. Um, but I think while he was out there keeping the sheep, he had a lot of time to meditate. And I wonder if he didn't write quite a few of the Psalms then. I think he developed a close relationship with God. And I don't know when he wrote Psalm 8, here it says to the chief musician upon Giddeth, the Psalm of David. So maybe maybe he wrote this one when he was a king. I don't know. But, you know, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. And he says, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? He had a view of God. That's humility to see God for who he is and to see ourselves for who we are in light of that. And David, David had captured that. And that was part at least of what made him the man that he was. Uh, so that was just that's just kind of a, a side thought here. Uh, but anyway, in quoting, quoting these verses from Psalm 8, 
Uh, David, of course, was thinking about man, the man as created, and that God put him here on the earth and, uh, and actually gave him a lot of responsibility. All the animals, I mean, man has dominion over everything. Uh, they also made him to have dominion over the works of the hands. They also put all things under his feet and so on. Talks about that. So David kind of marveled at that, what God had given, the place that God had given man. A little lower than the angels. Where, uh, the angels, you know, uh, what? Uh, one angel came and slew how many? 185,000 of the Syrian soldiers, I believe. So we're a little lower than the angels in that sense. But uh, we're crowned with glory and honor. Now, but here in Hebrews, it's sort of interesting. The scriptures often have different references or applications. And so David, when he wrote that, I think he was thinking about man in general. But here, the writer to Hebrews applies it to Christ. Christ became a man. And it says, you know, and it put all things in subjection under his feet. But he says, okay, he says all things in subjection under his feet and nothing that is not under his feet. But we see not yet all things put under him. So in this world, Satan, Jesus said Satan is the prince of this world. So not everything yet has been, now God is sovereign. but there's a lot going on in this world that at the instigation of Satan. Satan is still the prince of this world. And so it says, we see not. That whole thing is seeing and not seeing and seeing the things that are invisible. And that was kind of intriguing uh, in studying this. We see not yet all things put on him, but we see see Jesus. We see Jesus. The whole focus of this epistle, Jesus. Do you see Jesus? Do I see Jesus? The book, y'all have the book, we would see Jesus. That's what Roy and Rebel Hessian said, would you see Jesus? Would I see Jesus? What do we see? He was made a little lower in the angels his time here on earth. Why did Jesus become a man? See, that's what it's talking about here. He became a man. It became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make their captain of salvation perfect through suffering. But why did Jesus become a man? Well, there's an old, many years ago, one of the just for you's told this story. Evidently, it was some incident that the writer knew about, about the robins. It said it was a storm. A storm coming up, or maybe it's already occurring. I forget which. But... He was, and actually, I think this person was grappling with the whole idea of Jesus becoming a man. He couldn't quite see through that. He was thinking 
over the time, right at this instant, and bang, something hit the window. And bang, something hit the window. And it was Robbins. Uh, they could see the light, and the storm was coming. And he thought that he could drive him into the barn for protection. And so he went out, and he, this flock of robins, somehow he'd get them up to the barn door, but it was dark inside, and they wouldn't go in. And he was getting desperate. And he thought, if I could just become a robin and explain it to them, and it clicked with him. That is why Jesus became a man. See, God has spoken by his son. That was one reason Jesus became a man. The full and final revelation of God. That's, that's part of it. And he tasted death for every man. He died so that we don't have to die a spiritual death. A sacrifice for every human being that ever existed or ever will exist. That's why he became a man. A God, a God can't die. A man can die. He had to become a man to die for our sins. And in the resurrection, he conquered death. And we'll talk about that more in another message. That's, that's verses 14, 15, so on. And there's a statement here in verse 10 that's always kind of made me wonder. He became a man and it says, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Wasn't Jesus perfect? Did he have to suffer to be perfect? And I wonder if it wasn't more for our understanding than his. It says, both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are brothers with Christ. And somehow, maybe it's easier for us to accept that Christ can identify with us because of his sufferings. He suffered so many things. He suffered rejection. He suffered scorn. He suffered just about everything that a human can suffer. So it helps us believe that he can identify with our sufferings or our hurts. He could, with seems to me he could, God in his infinity could identify with us without having to go through it. But anyway, that's what it says. He was made perfect through sufferings. Well, then we have a couple more quotes from the Old Testament here in verses 12 and 13. Uh, again, uh, these verses emphasizing how 
in one sense, Christ was on the same plane as we are. And so, another help to us to put our trust in him, and I wanted to say earlier, this whole thing of seeing Jesus. We would see Jesus. Um, but we see, see, that was, um, that was verse 8, but, no, verse 9, but we see Jesus. And the song that David led before the message was, Be Thou My Vision. And it says, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that Thou art Thou my best thought by day or by night. And I thought, that's going to be a challenge to Troy this week. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. And the last verse, I thought about Noah. Noah doesn't have the background, the teaching, the spiritual reserves that we have. But it says, heart of my heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. And that's what he needs. And, you know, Philip feels the limitations of him and his family in relating to Noah. And how far do you go? And we, we help what we can, but ultimately what we want to help people like that is to look to Jesus because that is where they're going to find the strength they need. We are to help each other as brothers and sisters, but we can't, our, our dependence can't be ultimately on each other. It has to be on Jesus. Each has their place. But in my life, in your life, ultimately we have to look to Jesus. So, uh, the, uh, this, I just want to close with this. Uh, the, uh, one of the phrases here uh, in verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. That's a quote from Isaiah 8, 17, which uh, in the King James reads, I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. And here, uh, actually, I think the writer here is quoting from the Septuagint where he quotes, I will put my trust in him. I will look to him, has that idea of waiting on him or trusting in him, but I think the Septuagint actually maybe has, I will trust in him. So that's my closing thought or challenge. I will put my trust in him. May we long to see Jesus and may we put our trust in him.